0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you today. Um, my wife and I were away on vacation for a little while and we're back. And one of the things that we discovered while we were away on vacation is when you have a uh, few kids, when you go on vacation, it's just like doing life in a different place because you're parenting no matter where you are. And so as much as we had a great time and it was restful, it was still like doing a lot of the same stuff, just in a different place. Hey, I wanna share with you this morning a story. Now, uh, this is what Disney calls the Malaboomer and they took it out of service in 2010, but the Disney Malaboomer was a ride that I got the privilege of going on and it wasn't a privilege at all. I did not wanna ride on this thing, but I knew that if I didn't go on it, my wife would probably make fun of me. Um, it was in, yeah, it ended its service in about 2010, so about 15 years ago. My wife and I were in Disney, and I was in my 20s, and I thought, well, I'm gonna, you know, as much as I'm afraid of this ride, I don't like rides that have like a free fall. I don't like that feeling. Uh, you people who think that you can jump out of an airplane and that's a good thing and that's a fun thing, I don't understand you at all. But uh, for me, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hang out on the ground, but the Disney Malibu was one of those things where I'm like, it's at Disney, it's got to be safe, right? They have a good track record. So if I was ever going to get that free fall feeling, it was going to be on this ride. And so in order to not be a wimp and show my manliness to my wife, I decided I was going to go on this ride. Um... The way this ride works is uh, it shoots you up with a bunch of air pressure about 180 feet in the air, and as the ride gets to the very top, it loses momentum, and then you just free fall 180 feet down to the ground, and you're supposed to stop, right? I mean, there's going to be something mechanical that's going to keep you from hitting the ground, at least that's a, supposed to be how it works, but I was you know, afraid of the ride, so you never know what's going to happen. Anyway, I get on this ride, and they've got it so that your feet are just sitting there dangling. While you're waiting, and you're not quite touching the ground, and 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 then uh, as the ride's preparing to go, it lifts you up in the air about five or ten feet, and you just sit there, and the ride kind of hovers and bounces a little bit while you're waiting for it to go, and it counts down three, two, one, and nothing happens. And it's Disney, and so they're trying to build the suspense, right? And so I'm like, I've got a plan, because I don't want to be on this ride, and I don't like the free-fall thing that I'm going to experience soon. So in order to deal with all of these anxious feelings that I have in my stomach, and in order to keep the contents of my stomach where they're supposed to be, I'm going to scream. When this thing goes, I'm just going to let loose. Ah! And I'm just going to have a great time, and I'm just going to deal with the nervous energy, and things will be fine. Well, three, two, one happens, nothing goes on. I'm like, what's going on? And boom! All of a sudden, up I go. <laughs> the whole thing just goes rocketing into the air. And by the time I even realize what's going on, this thing's cresting the top at 180 feet. And I'm looking down at my toes as they're hanging out over 180 feet. And I've got to go back down there. The problem is, my stomach and my voice have been left down on the ground. And so my great plan of controlling the situation and screaming when I get to the top does not happen because I go to let out a scream and all I can do is ah, that's all I've got! There's nothing left! I was so terrified and so surprised by how quickly this thing launched me up that there was nothing and I was just along for the ride and there was nothing I could do about it. I was completely out of control and in that moment even my voice wasn't going to obey my command. But but I tell you this story because I think sometimes life is actually like that for us. Sometimes in life, you know, it seems out of control. And and there's nothing we can do, and we are just along for the ride. And that was my experience on the Malaboomer. I'm glad they got rid of it, by the way. It's gone now, you don't have to worry about proving your manliness on it. Today we're going to be continuing our summer blockbuster series. Last week, Dave talked to us about the story of Joseph and how God is hidden, but he is not absent. And we learned a lot about Joseph and the details of the story. We were in Genesis chapter 37, and that's what we covered last week. And so we learned a lot about the details of Joseph's life. Dave talked to us about how uh, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, had picked Joseph as his favorite kid. And Joseph had been given this fancy coat that he got to wear around that kind of designated that he was special to his father and he had this um, position in this family of being well-loved. Now, understandably, this bothered his brothers, right? I mean, they didn't like that in the natural order of things. You know, it was the oldest, you know, that kind of had the most prestige in the family and it went down from there. There was 11 of them and Joseph was almost at the bottom. He was second to youngest. And so they didn't like that. Joseph also had this dream. Two dreams, actually. Prophetic dream that one day his family, his brothers and his parents were going to bow down to him. And again, his brothers didn't like that either. And so what ended up happening is is his brothers, in their jealousy, they created this plan that they were going to kill Joseph. And finally, what ended up happening in the end is that they ended up putting Joseph in a cistern. And then they sold him to a bunch of Ishmaelites that were coming through the land, and they were going to sell Joseph, on their way to Egypt, pardon me, and they were going to sell Joseph into slavery. And so that is uh, some of the details of that story. And what they had done is when they sold Joseph, they took his coat from him, and they spread animal blood on this coat. And they brought it back to his father, and they said to their father, like, look at the blood on this coat, what's going on? And they convinced his father that Joseph had been killed by these wild animals. Now, we have four kids in our house, and there's times in our house where I think like, our house is the most dysfunctional place on earth. No family could ever be as crazy or as wild as what we have to go through. And then I read the story of Joseph, and I'm like, oh man, like we're not so bad, right? So I think, uh, anyway, uh, it could always be worse, I guess is my point in saying that, but the story of Joseph, that family had problems. And Joseph is now living some of these problems out. And today we're going to pick up this story. I love the story of Joseph. And so I wanted to carry on and continue this story as Joseph arrives in Egypt. And he does this in Genesis 39. So you can turn in your Bibles now if you want. I'm going to have it up on the screen in a little bit too. But we're going to spend a bit of time today going through Genesis 39, talking about the story of Joseph And we're going to be looking at uh, taking a fairly high-level view of the details, a sort of 30,000-foot view of what's going on there. And then towards the end, we're going to just kind of look at the the remaining chapters very quickly so we can talk about how the story ends. But even though we're going to be doing this high-level view, we are not going to miss the purpose of the story of Joseph and what the author is trying to communicate to us about God as we read this story. And that is that God is sovereign. Because the story of Joseph teaches us that God is sovereign and that he is in control all of the time over everything, working it towards his purposes. When we talk about sovereignty, uh, R.C. Sproul says that there isn't one particle floating around in the universe that is outside of God's control that he's not aware of and he couldn't influence if he wanted to at any time. And I think that's amazing. And what he's talking about there, he calls it the maverick po- molecule. And what he's talking about is he's saying there isn't one molecule that's floating around that, uh, that is outside of God's control. Because if there was one molecule that's floating around that's outside of God's control, there's no guarantee that that one molecule wouldn't be the, the, the grain of sand in the machinery of God's divine plan that could mess the whole thing up. In other words, God has to be in control of everything, because if he isn't in control of everything, then there's no guarantee that it's going to turn out the way that he wants it to. Wants it to. We read this, and the Bible declares in Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. And in Romans eleven, thirty-six, 36, we read, for from him and through him and for, thing, for, him, and for him are all things. According to Steve Lawson from Pillars of Grace, the sovereignty of God is the free exercise of his supreme authority in executing and administrating his eternal purposes. In other words, God must be sovereign if he is to be truly God. A God who is not sovereign is not God at all. Now, as Christians, we believe this on the surface. If I was to ask you, hey, do you believe in God's sovereignty? Do you believe that God's in control all the time? You would be like, yeah, of course, of course I believe that. However, I think in practice, when the emotion of life and the things happening in our lives uh, come to bear, this doctrine can actually be a little bit hard for us to hang on to. Life doesn't always seem to demonstrate the control that we think a sovereign God should have over his creation. And because when he doesn't do what we think he should do at certain times, then we start to wonder if God is sovereign at all. How could a sovereign God allow that circumstance to continue? How can a sovereign God or why wouldn't a sovereign God rescue me or rescue them from that situation? But when we question God's sovereignty, it doesn't mean and it doesn't change his sovereignty. See, we can wrestle with God's sovereignty and we can have moments where we're like, I don't think God's in control. But in those moments, it doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign. It just means that we don't understand the mind of God and when we don't understand the mind of God I think it can lead us in two different directions first or one of the things it can do is it can make us bitter and jaded towards God and the doctrine of the sovereignty of God can be one of the breaking points in our faith or we can choose to claim that he is God even when we don't understand We trust that he works everything out according to his plan exactly as he wants it to happen. I was a contractor for many years and when I was contracting we would lay tile for people sometimes. And What we would do is we would mix up mortar and we would spread it on the floor when we were laying tile, and if you were a really good tile setter, you would spread the mortar on the back of the tile as well, and you would set that down into the mortar, and what that would do is when it hardened up, it would create a firm foundation, and it would hold that tile in place. What can happen sometimes when, you're, when you have mortar is if it's not sifted properly, you can get little rocks in it, and if you get a little pebble in there, and you spread that pebble out on the floor, what can happen is, is the pebble sits on the floor, and the tile sits as a pressure point on top of that uh, pebble. Now, that's not a big deal if you're laying tile on a concrete floor because there's no movement. But if you're laying tile on a wood floor, there can be movement. And if there's a little pebble under there and somebody steps on that tile, then all of a sudden when that tile flexes, that rock's not going to move. And it's going to break that tile. Just like that, it'll crack the tile. We don't want the sovereignty of God to be the pebble that causes, our, uh, causes us to break when the pressure's on us. We want the sovereignty of God to be like the mortar that keeps us firmly in place when tough times come along. This is why the story of Joseph is so awesome, and I love looking at it and studying it, because I think, and we see, I should say, that the story of Joseph so clearly displays God's sovereignty over the course of what is an incredibly dramatic life. There are lots of highs and lows in the story of Joseph. And yet, as we look at it, it's very clear what's going on. God is in control. So in uh, verse 39, let's pick it up there. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had been taken taken him there. So as you can imagine... This has been an incredibly traumatic event for Joseph. He has been sold into slavery at this point. He's left everything that he knows, and he's being brought into a foreign land. And I can't imagine, or can't help but imagine, I should say, the emotion that he must have been feeling at that time. You know, this is like a 16 or a 17-year-old kid, and his brothers have just completely betrayed him. As a family member, I don't know if he's bound or not, but you get this picture as they're handing him over uh, uh, to these Ishmaelite slave traders that he's grasping at his brother's clothes, crying and probably pleading with them, don't do this, don't sell me into the slavery because his life is going to be so dramatically changed. And yet with hard hearts and complete steadfastness, his brothers, for a few coins, sell him into slavery and they don't even seem to care at all. When we pick up our story, this caravan has now entered Egypt, and they've gone to the market, and they're they're going to sell their commodities, of which Joseph is, just like a a piece of furniture, that's what a slave was back then, you know, it was like a couch, or a jar of oil, or a slave, they were a commodity to be sold and to be traded, and that day a rich man named Potiphar was, was in the market, and he sees Joseph, and he buys Joseph, and takes him as a slave, I would imagine that this would conjure up some resentment towards Potiphar on the part of Joseph. I mean, how could somebody buy you as a commodity when you're used to being, you know, have a a, a significant position in your family and and, and now you're purchased as a slave and you're going to be told what to do for the rest of your life. So I can imagine that Joseph had some feelings of anger towards Potiphar um, as he brought him from his home and, and, and now he's in an unfamiliar setting. And all of the love and honor and respect that he'd known a short time earlier was now gone. And as we consider what Joseph was going through on a personal level, you have to wonder if Joseph was questioning, where is God in all of this? You know, if God is real, and I'm supposed to be this great person in my family, and one day, you know, my my family's going to bow down to me like these dreams that I had. If that's going to happen, like, how is that even possible when I'm in this foreign land, and now I'm a slave? I'm nowhere near my family anymore. How is God going to put this all back together? How easy would it have been for Joseph in that moment to believe that God isn't real? You know, I'm sure he was overcome with feelings of hopelessness and despair, you know, sure he had those dreams and, and, and that would have been something that he hung on to in the good times. Like, yeah, I'm gonna be the, the member of this family that everybody bows, bows down to. But in the low points of life, when that stuff's happening to him in the emotion of the moment, do you really think that Joseph was able to hold on to that dream and say, hey, that's gonna be me one day? I mean, in that moment, it probably would have been really easy to be like, you know what? I think that dream actually might have just been bad pizza the night before. You know, it... it, it my bad. I was wrong. How could God possibly allow him to go through all of this if he is truly in control? At this point, it seems like maybe there is no way God is going to be able to redeem that Joseph, the life that Joseph thought he was going to have. But in the midst of his despair, the author makes it clear to us that Joseph is not alone. He may feel alone, and he might be physically alone, but You know, there's this sense for us that God is right beside Joseph and he's working things out and maybe, just maybe, there'll be some comfort for Joseph to be had down the road and maybe God has got this in his hands. We keep reading. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did... Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendant. Potiphar gets it. He sees that there's something different about this guy. And it's not just that Joseph had these great talents and he was really skilled, although he might have been. Potiphar sees that there's something divinely, pardon me, special about this young man. And so Potiphar elevates Joseph to this position, this uh, more elevated position in the home. Keep reading. Potiphar put him in charge of the household. And he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. You know, Potiphar is not confused about what's happening here. You know, he sees that God is blessing this kid and he's like, you know what? If God is going to be on this kid, and Potiphar doesn't believe in God, by the way. He doesn't know who God is, but he sees that because there's something divinely special and there's this divine blessing on this kid, like let's put everything under his care and see if God doesn't just make it all awesome. And Potiphar's starting to see that Joseph is this golden boy and things are starting to go well. Potiphar's getting wealthy off Joseph at this point. And so he wants to capitalize On that, And so he leverages everything that he has into Joseph's care. You know, the fields are producing better now. He's got less wrinkles on his face. The cows are making more cows. Like things are going well for Potiphar. And we're beginning to see here that despite the incredible setback in Joseph's life, God has not hindered his, or God's plan has not been hindered in any way. As a matter of fact, despite what we would look at as a cursed life, Joseph's life life hasn't been going well, and from his perspective, it's like, God's probably cursing me. But we can see quite clearly, and anybody around him see that, you know what, God is present. God is doing something. I think we also need to take note here of Joseph's attitude in the whole situation. There's no indication as we look at this story that Joseph's complaining about anything that's going on. God is still doing his thing, and he's uh, very likely had these feelings and thoughts that, you know, like, where's God in all of this? But he didn't waver in his faith at all, wondering about God's sovereignty or God's ability to rescue him and restore him to his family, into the life that he thought he was going to live. But God has no intentions of putting Joseph back into the life that he thought he was going to live. In fact, Joseph is going to be living a much greater life than he could have ever imagined. There are so many times throughout the story of Joseph where the situation he finds himself in could have broken his faith in God. And, he, and who could have blamed him? But he doesn't break. You see, God's sovereignty provide, or, or presides over this, this whole setting. And it's obvious, obvious to us as we read it. As a matter of fact, as we read the story of Joseph, and many have heard the story before, but as we read this story, we're not thinking about, oh, poor Joseph. Having to live as a slave and the emotion of being ripped away from his family, we don't even think about that kind of stuff as we look at the story because we know and we have a different perspective that God is in control and we can see it happening. I highly doubt it felt that way for Joseph in those moments. We get to read this story from a different perspective and it allows us to have a settled spirit because we know the ends must justify the means. God knows what he's doing, right? And it's easy to see that. But when we don't have this view of a story, like when we're the main character of the story, is our steadfastness in the sovereignty of God really as secure? I wonder, right? If we don't believe in the sovereignty of God or understand the sovereignty of God when we suffer, it means that we're suffering for nothing or we're alone and God has somehow overlooked us. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you're like, where are you, God? You're praying, God, please reveal yourself to me. But the prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and landing back on your face. You don't, you don't hear him, you don't see him, you don't feel him, and you wonder what's going on. Well, the truth is, life has valley top, or valley experiences, of me, and mountaintop experiences. And we don't have the same view of God's sovereignty in the valley that we get in some of the other moments in life. The view from the bottom just doesn't have the perspective that we have on the top of the mountain, and it's hard to pick out God's sovereignty. But even when God doesn't appear to be around, it doesn't change his eternal qualities. And We don't know what's going on. God is still sovereign in that moment, and we need to be able to claim the truth of God in those moments. When we're at the bottom and we can't feel God and we can't see God and we don't know if he's there and we're wondering, God, are you even real? It's those moments that we need to remember, oh yeah, the promises and the truth of God. He is sovereign and we need to claim these things. God, you are sovereign and you are in control. Even when I don't see you, even when I don't understand it, you are still sovereign. Because how we feel doesn't change God's sovereignty over our lives our lives regardless of what they look like are in God's hand no matter how deep the valley we can never escape God's sovereign control keep reading there I think it's on the screen already in 6b it says uh, now Joseph was well built and handsome Okay, well, when you see these kind of details in the Bible, uh, you need to take note of it, because there's a, couple, there's a couple of things that I think here. First, when we read these kind of details about somebody in the Bible, like, it means something crazy is about to happen, because the Bible isn't some saucy romance novel. It's a love story, but it's not a saucy romance novel. So when you get details like this, you know something's coming. And the second thing that I think when I read, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, is like, Really, God? This guy is like blessed beyond measure. Everything he touches turns to gold. And he gets to be good looking and handsome. How fair is that? The way I think it should be done is if you are good looking, you're useless. You don't get to have any success at all. In my economy anyway. If you're successful, you're ugly. That's just the way it's going to be. So like in my world... Jeff Bezos, the guy who you know founded Amazon, richest guy in the world, ugliest guy on the planet. That's just the way it goes. It's only fair, right? You guys are like, it's a good thing you're not running the show, Joel. <laughs> Nevertheless, because of the blessings that follow this guy around, and we see Joseph, I mean, he's handsome, he's well-blessed, you can understand why his brothers maybe took offense to him and maybe had an issue with him. Joseph's like the neighbor that you have that drives the nice car. You know, the whole family is like fit. You see them going swimming. The kid's never out of line. You've never seen them yell. Like, like that's the family next door. And you're like, man, they can, they can move to Siberia. I don't even want to see them anymore. And if you're like, Joel, I don't have a neighbor like that. You're the neighbor. That's you. <laughs> But because this story is of God's sovereignty, even Joseph's good looks play a role in God's sovereign plan. The very development of Joseph's body is something that God uses to bring to his ends to the story. And in verse 7, Joseph's good looks end up catching the attention of Potiphar's wife and not in a good way. His good looks and his success have aroused this woman's curiosity in him, and she begins to proposition herself to this man, this young man, day after day. But Joseph has a different view of this scenario and what's happening. He sees God's hand in all of it, and he refuses. Joseph is a good man, and he respects his master, and he fears God, and he says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin sin against God? He's worried about sinning, sinning against God because God is still in the picture for him. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now there's a lesson in here about temptation and about staying away from temptation, but we're not going to touch on that today, but man, there's some good stuff in there as well. Joseph's response is amazing and far beyond his years, and he shows incredible wisdom. Despite everything that he has gone through, Joseph remains faithful to God. How is this even possible that he could stand up to these kind of temptations and this kind of of prodding from this woman unless he believes in the sovereign hand of God being upon his life still? The circumstances and the things that he's gone through are, you know, that have happened to him are horrible. But this has not been enough to shake Joseph's idea of what God is all about and cause him to think less of him. How easy it would have been for Joseph in these moments to be angry with God and to take advantage of this situation. You know, he, Potiphar purchased him and ruined his life in a lot of ways. And this is his wife now. What a great way to get back at Potiphar to take advantage of this situation. Or why not, you know, lower your morals? Because God doesn't care about sin anyway. Look at what his brothers did to him. And they didn't seem to get punished. But Joseph doesn't do this. For Joseph, life is confusing. And he doesn't know what's going on, but God is still seated on his throne and in charge of everything. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Joseph continues to the bitter end, treating this woman respectfully. And he doesn't waver in that. But, his, but her aggression or her um, um, propositioning has reached new heights here. as She begins to get physically aggressive with him. Um, but he still doesn't break. Even in that, and he runs out of the house, leaving his cloak behind. And at best, in this scenario, Joseph's running out of the home through the front door wearing nothing but his Spider-Man underwear. At worst, he's running out of the house with his birthday suit on. Either way, this is not a good scenario that Joseph finds himself in, and his clothes are left in the house. And after this latest rejection, Potiphar's wife, uh, pardon me, her passion for Joseph starts to turn to anger. And she begins to fabricate this story about him, which is completely untrue. When she, saw, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hands and had ran out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story, that the Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. You know, even in this, she's blaming it on other people other than herself. You know, the Hebrew slave you brought to me, honey, look at what he's done. Can you believe this? It's your fault. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. At this point, you know, the moral of this story is starting to look like, hey, Joseph, stop leaving your clothes around. Every time this guy leaves his clothes somewhere, somebody's using it to make a lie about him. There's a message in this for you teenagers, by the way. Pick your clothes up or you never know what's going to happen to your life. (laughs) This is no different. In this moment, the cloak is used as evidence against Joseph. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. On the surface at this point in the story, it looks like Potiphar's wife may have won the day that her lie has succeeded and she's dealt another serious blow to Joseph in his life. But as the author shows us in the next couple of verses, this is actually still a part of God's plan. Even the evil that she meant for Joseph, God is able to take that and he's able to use it. To bring about his divine plan. You see God isn't messed up by our sin. And that's really good news. Because if God could be messed up by our sin. And if somehow our sin could, could uh, deal a blow to his sovereignty. Then it would mean that our salvation would be in jeopardy when we sinned. It would also mean that God's plan of salvation for us. Could have been messed up by somebody's sin along the way. But God is sovereign and God is in control. And our sin, even our sin couldn't mess up God's plan. Joseph is put in prison, but his master actually had every right to kill him. I mean, he's just a commodity. He's like a piece of furniture. If your dishwasher breaks down, you get rid of it and you get a new one. If your slave treats people in the house disrespectfully or is accused of attempted rape, you have every right to kill him. But Potiphar Potiphar doesn't do that to Joseph he only imprisons him and that kind of gives us some insight that maybe Potiphar doesn't quite believe the story that his wife told him. The Bible says he burned with anger, but it doesn't say that he bur- or who he burned with anger against. And so there's a there's a sense here that maybe Potiphar knows his wife a little bit better than she thinks he knows him and maybe this blessing of the Lord and the things he's seen in Joseph has shown him a different side of Joseph. And so he takes Joseph, and he puts him in prison. And this is going to make put him in a place where he's going to rub shoulders with some people from Pharaoh's court in the future, which is going to just be another step that gets him closer to where God wants him to be in his life. The other really interesting thing about this is, the prison that Joseph went to is the prison of the captain of the guard. Well, who's the captain of the guard? It's Potiphar. Potiphar put Joseph in his own prison, which very likely could have been on his own property even. And so he still has Joseph close to him. But while Joseph was there in prison the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he made him responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything that he did or whatever in whatever he did. Regardless of how uncontrolled Joseph's life seems to be and how all these random things are happening, God is moving and weaving all of this together. It doesn't seem to matter what happens to Joseph. God is still reigning on his throne, and he is in control. And as we look at the rest of the story of Joseph's life, we can see how that story unfolds. Here in Genesis 40, Joseph is introduced to Pharaoh's, cup baker, or, uh, Pharaoh's uh, chief cup bearer and baker and when he's introduced to them these men have dreams that joseph accurately interprets for them and uh, they gain he gains favor in their eyes in verse uh, chapter 41 pharaoh has this nightmare about a severe famine coming upon the land but nobody can interpret this dream and so joseph is brought out of the prison to interpret this dream to pharaoh and he does it accurately and because he does it accurately uh, Pharaoh elevates Joseph to second in command in all of Egypt. A slave has now been made prime minister of Egypt over everything. Second only to Pharaoh. And that's amazing. And on top of that, Joseph, with Joseph now in control, God blesses the entire land of Egypt. The grain harvest is so substantial while Joseph is in charge that they stop counting it. It is beyond measure, the Bible tells us. But then the famine strikes the land. And in Genesis 42 and 40 through 44, we see that uh, Joseph's family runs out of food. And so they're forced to go to Egypt to try and purchase food because that's the only place that there's food left. And they end up uh, buying food from Joseph. But they don't know it's Joseph because Joseph still looks like an Egyptian dignitary. In chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals himself to his family, to his brothers, and they take this good news back to his father. And in chapter 46, Joseph's entire family moves to Canaan and is given the best of the land to settle in. And now it's clear that God has been doing something and he has sustained and blessed them all. For the survival of Israel and for the survival of Egypt, God has allowed all of these events to take place. But the story of Joseph isn't this isolated story of God's sovereignty in Joseph's life, and in this small story, this story is a part of God, a much bigger story of God's sovereign plan and design. And the story goes like this: God wanted to reveal Himself to humanity and show Him how much He loved them, and so He picked a people group to do that in. And then he sent one of those people group to Egypt in order to prepare a way for the family to reside in that land. And then when the famine struck, the family moved to that land, and there was about 70 of them. 400 years later, that family had turned into a nation of people, over a million people. We don't know how many, but we know there was more than a million people, likely, a part of this nation. And in that time, God called that people group out of that area. And he was going to give them a land of their own. And while he was bringing them out of Egypt, he gave them rules and laws because this nation was supposed to look different and it was supposed to show the world that there was something different about people who believed in God and had God at the center of their life. And once he gave them a land, eventually he came into the human condition in that uh, land, through that people group, in the person of Jesus. And as Jesus, he paid for the sins of humanity in that story so that not just the Israelite people would know God, but so that anyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved and they would have the Holy Spirit in them and they would know God. And this is where it comes into play for me and you. Because now people see God through us. We are God's uh, stewards in the world and people get to see the Lord through us. And we are bringing him to the world. And so we are a part of this grand story that God has been weaving throughout history. Through you and I, others are meant to see God and so that they can know him too. If God is not sovereign and in control, this story that spans all of history is this perfectly orchestrated coincidence. And can you imagine if even one of the details over the course of history had changed? I mean, just imagine if Joseph hadn't have been his father's favorite. And if Joseph hadn't have been given that, that fancy robe to wear around. And if his brothers hadn't, you know, hatched a plan to kill him. Right down to the very detail of Joseph's good looks. If you change any of the details in the story over the course of history, it doesn't end the same way. The truth is, it's not a coincidence. God is sovereignly in control, and in the chaos and in the valleys of life, he is continuing to work things out for his eternal purposes. Now, I'm a bit of a newsaholic. Okay, I like to look at the news. It's weird for such a young person. I know that's what you're thinking. But anyway, I like, to, I like to watch the news. I'm fascinated about what, what's going on in the world all the time and how it affects me and my family. And I'm also fascinated about how you know, God is weaving this all together in his plan. And there's certainly news stories and headlines that come across that make me shake my head more than others. But one of the news stories and headlines that has come across more lately over the past several years that have caused me to shake my head more is this uh, um, idea of climate change and, and the way that it's presented in the news and uh as i as i as i look at that it, uh, it makes me uh, irritated because of the way they present it you know when they present these stories they do it from a perspective with god not involved at all god is not in control humans are at the top of the pile and we got to figure this problem out god is not sovereign in control and that bothers me Because when stories about climate change are reported from this perspective, that doesn't consider that God is in control. God is not presiding over the world, and he is not in charge. And when we hear world leaders and news anchors discussing climate change, they do it from a perspective of real fear and dread. Like, what are we going to do as humans to solve this problem? And if we don't solve it, we're dead. But the truth is, God is sovereign over everything. Even climate change is underneath God's sovereign control and in his plan. But this is not the way it's presented. Somehow we think we're going to solve our problem. How can we think to solve a problem over the entire earth, something that God has created without considering the one who created it? Of course we're supposed to steward the earth. Of course we're supposed to take care of it. This is God's creation. But God is the one in control. The last thing I want to say to you is this. Joseph's view on the sovereignty of God in his life helped him endure some incredibly difficult things. He overcame incredible adversity. His moral compass wasn't swayed or thrown off by the things that happened to him. He was able to rule diligently, and he was able to forgive the people that harmed him the most in his life. How is that even possible to do unless you have a perspective on the sovereignty of God in your life? That he is working things out for his plan. Listen to Joseph's words in Genesis 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. He didn't understand. He thought he was just saving the people of of Egypt. He didn't understand the grand plan that God was working out. The salvation of much more than just that. Joseph knew he was a part of something even bigger. Pardon me and it gave him what he needed to endure and even thrive in some really difficult moments in life. There is something profound about our acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in our lives, to be able to stand in a place and say, I don't know what's going on here, God, but even when I don't understand what's going on, you are in control, you are sovereign. You are God even when I don't even understand what's gonna be happening tomorrow. Joseph was a slave and he suffered in Egypt for 13 years. During his suffering, during the dark moments of his life, was God still sovereign? You bet he was. And is he still sovereign in our lives today regardless of what's going on? Of course. I wanted to share this with you today because God has been pressing upon my heart the importance of knowing who he is. Because what can happen is if our theology of God isn't quite right, is we can be tempted to, to fill in the gaps with what we think we know about God instead of what the truth of Scripture shares with us about God. And when we fill in the gaps with what we think we know about God and we're wrong, Satan loves to take those things and he twists them and he's able to shake our faith in moments of weakness in the valleys of life. And so I wanted to share that with you today. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you. Thank you that you are sovereign in control, that you are worthy of our worship, and that you have us in the palm of your hands. God help us in the moments in our weakness to be able to trust in you. God, when we don't feel you or know you in our hearts or, or we feel like you're not around, God, in those weak moments in our lives, I pray that even in now, in the good times, I pray that you would cement your sovereign purposes and your sovereign plan in our hearts so that we are not shaken during tough times. So we thank you for this, God. We thank you that we have a wonderful God that is working things together for his plan and purpose. And Lord, we are ecstatic about one day seeing how this all comes together as we stand before you in your throne room, praising your holy name and understanding without a shadow of a doubt that you are holy and you are sovereign over everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.